Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Cale Guthrie Weissman, the editor-in-chief here at Modern Retail. And today I'm joined with Andrew Blackman, the COO of Top Hatter. And I'm excited to talk about just sort of the overall uh, online e-commerce platform space. Top Hatter is a really fascinating company in terms of how it, you know, what it offers and the, the types of sales it does. And so I just want to sort of dig into all of that specifically because everyone for the last year has been buying most of their stuff online. So I imagine Andrew saw some interesting things over the last year. But um, hey, Andrew, thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So first, why don't we start with uh, your background? So you've been at Top Hatter for a, a, quite a while now. So to give me a little bit sort of what you do, how what your evolution at the company has been and sort of what you were doing before. So um, I've been at Top Hatter essentially since since we launched the product. The company is a couple years older than that. So um, our two founders, Ashwin and Chris, were working together for a long time, building lots of different products, throwing things at the wall, seeing what stuck, um, you know, for many years, for a few years, like working on this business. And then we, you know, we found this, this opportunity that, that was really interesting. We started seeing initial traction. I joined, it must've been almost nine years ago now. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we've been live with this, with this product ever since in the marketplace. Um, and so my job has been, well, from the beginning, my job was really, everything outside of engineering. So Chris and, Chris and Ashwin are the two technical engineering founders. Um, and so my job was everything else. So it was like building a marketplace, considering, you know, supply and demand, thinking about um, the marketing aspect of generating, you know, demand from from consumers and then where our supply channels were going to come from. Over the, t- over the last nine years, obviously my, my role has evolved quite a bit as we've grown um, and we've established operations in, in different parts of the world. And I focus mostly now on how we can make the top hatter experience more game-like and more entertaining for our consumers. Because we discovered pretty early on that our differentiator was in this entertaining e-commerce experience. And we also discovered that there was a real need for that. So if you look at the way e-commerce evolved over the first sort of 20 years, everything became really efficient, you know, really fast, cheap, but a lot less fun and a lot less joyful. And so we found that that was really the, the key to our success and the reason why we were able to, to grow. And so my focus right now has been on essentially double, triple, quadrupling down on that and building an experience that looks much more like a game than it does uh, you know, a, shopping, a shopping experience. Got it. And so just for those who don't know, can you give a brief description of, I've been on Top Hatter. It's a yep. really cool website. It's pretty much a deal, you know, of, I guess, gridded deals is how I would describe it. And, it, you know, there are a lot of flashy, fun little things, and you can put a bid on something for as little as 10 cents. But is that sort of how it's always been? This just sort of fun bid for something if you want, maybe you'll win it, maybe you won't? Well, sort of, except that you're you're in the minority because you were looking at, you were using the, you know, the, the experience on the web, the vast oh, majority. Oh, that's true. The vast majority of our users are, are shopping on mobile. Um, and that's, by design. I mean, the, the experience is, is designed for mobile. So you can think about it like, you know, there's these live auctions that we run all the time, but you can also think about it <clears throat> more like a shopping feed. So the same way you, you know, open up Facebook and see a feed of, of news stories re- relevant to you or your friends or Instagram or, or um, Snapchat or any of these experiences that are feed driven. That's what our experience is. So you open up the app and you see a feed of products coming at you and you can bid on them. Some of them you, you purchase outright you know, kind of a, a buy now price. Some of them you get to name your price and, and see if the 
seller accepts it. Um, but the real, the interesting part about it is that it's a feed. You're not searching. Your things are being pushed at you, and you're deciding whether you you want to to buy them or not. So it's very much like a, a discovery type experience. So to give a bit of background, so yeah, so so we we're we run we're predominantly live auctions. Um, and when you people think of auctions online, they think of eBay. We're sort of like eBay, except that our auctions take a minute or two, not you know a day or a week. And so the, the, the realization there is that people are always connected, especially with their smartphone. And so you can have these live auctions where you're competing with someone else in that room at that exact same time to win that item. And that generates some excitement and you can see, you know, who's, who's beating you, who you're beating. And it, it feels like a game that you're, that you're winning. You know, we talk about how the buyer, you know, they win an item, they don't, they don't buy an item. Um, and those kind of distinctions, I think, are, are unique to, to what we do. What is the average price? Like, do you have a, is there a general win price? Yeah, so that's part of the interesting thing about the business as well, is we do a lot of volume at a relatively low ASP, which is something that most other e-commerce businesses have moved in the other direction to do you know, mm-hmm. higher ASPs and, and fewer transactions. So our average selling price for an item is typically about 10 bucks. Um, you know, there's obviously a range there and some things will sell for you know, over a hundred and some other things will sell for a dollar. Um, but the average ends up being about $10 and that allows people to participate really easily. You know, it's, a, it, you can make a decision really quickly. It's not a, it's not a big, um, ticket item. And importantly, from a business perspective, because people can make these decisions so quickly, they, they can transact a lot and we, gather a lot of data from every one of those interactions so we can make the experience better for that user the more they come back and visit by surfacing products that are more interesting to them. Um, and so this is where like the feed element comes in. Because you're not searching, because we're pushing products at you, we've got to be really good at pushing you know, the right product to the right person at the right time and to add complexity to it in this like multi-user environment where other people are interacting with you at the same time. So it's it's a it's a complex but a really fun um, you know business challenge. Walk me through sort of the growth over the last few years. How have how have you acquired customers? What have you experienced? I di- what did what happened over the last year specifically because I imagine uh, a lot of uh behavior changed in terms of how people were buying online and that probably had an impact on top adder. Yeah. Yeah, so more more broadly over the last, you know, 8 years or so, we've grown um, you know, through, through a variety of channels, our most, it's actually interesting. Our, our best channel from a user acquisition perspective has always been Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I guess it's not surprising because our experience is very much like the Facebook experience channels that don't work for us typically are things like paid search on Google, where you know what you're looking for and you're, yeah. and you're competing with other products because our experience isn't geared for that. So you actually, the odds that you come, you see a product you, cut, you click on it, you come into our app, the odds that you, that's actually the product that you end up buying is less than 20%. Most of the time you buy something else just because of the way the, the feed works. And so Facebook's been our best channel for user acquisition and then obviously a lot of organic growth on top of that. Over the last year, you know, I think everything has changed um, for us included, but in some ways, like the more things change, the more they've stayed the same. Like we've seen a, a real, we saw a surge in demand, but we we already knew this was, happening, people were shifting more of their time online and specifically on mobile. And so 
we had, there was a period at this time last year, think about like March, April last year, where, um, you know, acquiring users and growing demand was, was, was relatively simple. The challenge that we had, the big challenge for our business was on the supply chain side. So, you know, I think you guys may remember, everyone remembers trying to buy toilet paper and yeah. nothing would show up. But we had that same dynamic, but it lasted a lot longer for us. And the reason it lasted a long time for us is because our supply chain is mostly cross-border international stuff that's coming from Asia to the United States, where most of our customers are. We're about 80% U.S. And when you know we don't put it on a boat, it takes too long, it goes on a plane, and when planes stop flying, those cargo the cargo gets impacted as well. So we had this really challenging year last year where we had you know record consumer demand, but a real difficult time sourcing product. Uh, and so uh, we tempered our growth as a result of that. And we, 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 we slowed down basically because we couldn't get product to customers fast enough. Now that's, that's shifting and we're, we're growing really fast again. But still, if you look at our business at Free the Year, we grew you know 20 plus percent you know, we would have loved our demand side. We grew even faster than that. We'd love to go faster this year. We think we'll be able to grow much faster than that again and get back on sort of a doubling path for the, for the business. Can you talk to me a little bit about how sort of the supply side works? Is it that you source it directly? Do you have sellers overseas? Sort of how, how does that all work? Yeah, we're a marketplace. So we don't ourselves own any product. We're very much like eBay um, in that regard, where we have thousands of sellers that compete that choose products that they want to sell. And we sit in the middle of every transaction. So a buyer that buys from us knows they're going to get what they bought. And if they don't, they can come to us and we can refund and unwind the transaction. <clears throat> but we ourselves are not the are not the seller. We don't manufacture products. We don't have warehouses or anything like that. Um, and so we have this community of, of, of sellers um, and we find that them competing and them, you know, interacting with each other and responding to our incentives has been a really powerful way to grow and a, a powerful sort of merchandising. People don't think about it as merchandising, but we don't have any merchants on our team. We mm -hmm. don't have any buyers. What we have is account managers that work with the sellers to help them get up and running, but then the sellers make decisions on, on what products to list. How many sellers do you have? Yeah, so that, that question is, it's a little, you know, I could, we have... First of all, we have hundreds of thousands of people that have registered in terms of like Got people it. that have to register to sell. In terms of sellers, we probably have about 5,000 total sellers, but in any given day, it's probably about a thousand that, that make a difference and that sell mm -hmm. in any kind of, um, you know, significant or not even any kind of volume. And so those thousand sellers like form the, the, the basis of this competition that, that drives things forward. Would you say that Top Hatter sellers are predominantly on Top Hatter or are they on a, a range of different platforms? Sort of like, what is the ecosystem there? Because I feel like with different e-commerce platforms, there are sort of cultures and dynamics and some yeah. are obviously multi-channel, some aren't. What, how, how do yours work given that there's such a low average price and that you know a lot of them are overseas? Sort of, how, how does that all shaken out? Yeah, well, a lot of our sellers, well, first of all, most of these sellers on our platform and on most other platforms are willing to give anything a try. So we know that our sellers <laughs> will sell on other channels to see if they work. Um, a lot of our sellers are successful on, on Wish and other mm -hmm. platforms. And um, some of them that have come to us have actually moved most of their business to us, but we don't ask that or require that from a seller. We know that our sellers are looking to, are looking to grow as fast as they can and to be in as many marketplaces as they can. The one thing that we offer 
that other marketplaces don't is we offer a lot more control to the seller again because of this like feed format that we have mm-hmm. so you can be selling a product that literally nobody on Amazon is searching for because they don't even know that it exists or that nobody's going to Google and typing something in for because they're not looking for that thing and we can surface it to the right buyer and so we give sellers that control to set their budget and to service products so that's why they would sell through us but it's really a lot if you think of who the demographic is on the seller it's a lot of sellers that that sell on wish and other other cross-border platforms as well. Can you talk a little about how you've approached your sort of seller dynamics? You said you don't have a merchandising team and that you have sort of a program, you know, uh, I forget the word that you use, but you saying that, you know, giving them incentives. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But like incentives to keep sellers on the program. How has that changed over the years and what what works and what doesn't? And sort of how do you how do you keep them engaged? Yeah, that's a really good question. So and this starts with like what our business looks like. So you can imagine, you know, as you go in our app, you'll see all these live auctions. Something might start at a dollar with free shipping. It's it's risky for the seller, if you think about yeah. that. Like they're going to put something up there. On average, we know they're going to do well. We manage the marketplace so that prices are, are reasonable for both sellers and buyers. But it's a it's a scary thought for a seller that's just bought a bunch of inventory or just invested in a bunch of inventory to sell things and maybe something's going to sell for a lower price than they than they want. And so and the next time it'll sell for a higher price, but there's variability there that is challenging for the seller. And so not too long ago, maybe three, four years ago, we, we saw this as a flaw and we saw this as a, as a, as a, as an issue on the supply side that we needed to fix. And so we went out and we spent a bunch of time trying to predict how items were going to perform, tell the seller, don't worry about it. We'll take the risk. Just list a bunch of products. Tell us what your cost is. Look, we want it to look more like a traditional marketplace, like more like an Amazon or an eBay. eBay is auctions, but it's mostly fixed price. So more like a traditional marketplace where a seller will sell at fixed price because we thought that would attract sellers that were that were turned off by the risk that our platform provided or created. And that was a huge mistake. And we figured that out over the course of a year. The reason why it was a huge mistake is because while we gained a lot of inventory or a lot of access to inventory from sellers that were afraid of risk and wanted to just price things at, at, at a fixed price, we lost their engagement. And so they would just mm-hmm. kind of set it and forget it, give us like a list of millions of SKUs or hundreds of thousands of SKUs. And we had to decide what would sell. And we were pretty good at deciding what would sell well, but then we found like the next cycle, they were less engaged and, and spending less time trying to figure out what products to tailor for our marketplace. And so we started to see the risk actually as a as a as an asset of the marketplace. So Yes, there, there's risk for sellers that sell on our platform, but that also creates incentive for sellers to figure out what works and the ones that figure it out do disproportionately well. And so we are a marketplace that's trying to appeal to you know, all sellers all the time and have like unlimited supply. What we want to do is find the sellers that have the time and energy and resources to engage in our marketplace, find the winners and appeal to them. And the reason that's important for us as a business is because they do much better at figuring out what our buyers want to buy than we do. And they keep it dynamic. And so as long as we have the right incentives, which we haven't always had, but if you have the right incentives in terms of um, carrots and sticks and bonuses and penalties, we find that the that the risk-oriented part of the marketplace actually is really important. So that's like one of the biggest surprises and things we've learned over over the years on the merchandising side. 
So what are some of the carrots that you offer? Is that just like if you sell this many, you get a bonus back? Or how, how have you fashioned that? Yeah, so in essence, what it boils down to is the economics. So um, just like we're at an auction on this demand side where you you know bid against other potential mm-hmm. buyers, it's also an auction on the supply side. So the sellers are competing with each other to list their items in that limited um, you know, attention slot. And so they'll bid, you know, what they think it's worth to them to, to get that, um, to get that attention and they're competing against other sellers and the better a seller performs and performance can be across a variety of metrics. It can be like, how well do you convert new users? You know, how fast do you ship? How high is your product quality rating? Like there's a bunch of ways we can measure performance, but the better you perform, the more of an advantage we can give you in that auction for, for space. So it's, it's very much like Google's, you know, AdWords model where, yeah, anybody can bid on any term, but the best converting ads pay less because Google's, Google's algorithm is, is smart about assigning um, those, the, those, the sort of the sequence of those clicks. So that's how it works fundamentally. I mean, it's underneath the hood, there's like a scheduler that's complex, but really it's about sellers, sellers that perform better, make more money. And that's what's key to them. You mentioned the entertainment and discovery side, because that's sort of the the essence of the platform. You said that it's a, really a big data play and that you're you're getting customer data and you're figuring out what, what works. So how have you built that out? How has it changed? Um, what is is this just a question of hiring the right talent who would be able to crunch those numbers or sort of how how have you been able to figure it out so that it has become a pure like entertaining discovery platform as opposed to just sort of a dry like bidding thing? So there's, there's two aspects of that. There's one is the, the data aspect, and then the other is the sort of entertaining aspect. Mm-hmm. On the data side, a lot, of, a lot of our decisions on data actually were very intentional, and they weren't about you know, some belief that we were going to be smarter than, than other people or hire better people that could you know, crunch numbers differently. It was more about we thought that the key to, to making a better experience on the data side was create collecting as much data as we can. And, and when I say that, I don't mean like private data or like crawling into someone's experience. I mean, creating an experience that itself would generate a lot of data. So that's why we have a lot of bidding, for example, because it's really easy to bid on an item. Um, it's, it's the commitment is less than like, you know, spending full price, you're bidding like a dollar on something, but that gives us an indication that at least you're, you're interested in that kind of item. Even more than bidding, you know, you can like an item and you can set reminders that will then push notify you when that thing is, is on the block. And all those little actions create data that we can use to, to tailor the experience. So that was like intentional on our end. In terms of the entertainment side, it was actually has been more, you know, reacting as we grew to what resonated with consumers. So you would think that consumers, or at least if you follow the internet for, you know, 20 years, you think consumers just wanted better prices and faster shipping. But we actually saw that that wasn't the case in our in our own data where, you know, we would we would do A-B tests and we would understand like what converts users better. Like actually consumers in our experience wanted competition. Like competition was really key to driving conversion. They didn't, they wouldn't tell you they wanted competition. They wouldn't say, Hey, I want to compete against <laughs> someone to win this product. They would probably say, I don't want to compete. I want to get a lower price, but we know when there isn't competition in the marketplace. In other words, there'll be periods where we run too much supply and something is you know, wrong on the demand side. So it's like really easy to win everything. 
you would think that that's really good for buyers, but it actually isn't in our metrics. It, buyers don't want to bid as much if they don't see other people bidding. They 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 become sort of more questionable of the offering or whatever it is. And 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 so to me, that's a little bit of a game type of a behavior too, where it's like you're participating in this multi-person experience and it makes you want to participate. And so we saw that. That was like one of the earliest things in terms of understanding that competition actually helped on the buy side. And then since then, we've built in a lot of mechanics to, to not, not, I wouldn't say make it more competitive, but make it possible for people to get better at the game. Mm-hmm. And the longer you play, the more rewards you get and the easier it is to, you know, win that next product that you want to win or get that next feature or power. And we've added all sorts of things that actually are, they seem really strange in e-commerce. Like you can <laughs> customize your experience now and have like different, um, you know, different graphics that appear when just you bid and other people can see that and then people compete to have those kind of experiences. And so it's this wild world of like just becoming more of a, of a game-like experience on, on your phone that, um, that we've leaned into. It makes sense that once people are in the app, they love the gamified experience. It seems very psychological. Like, you know, you, I can imagine myself at like 2 a.m. scrolling through being like, I need this, I need that, like that. But is there an education process to get people to to actually understand how it works and why they why they should do that? Because I think that the big frontier for a lot of other e-commerce platforms that are less focused on entertainment is just like that people don't seek out products online with discovery in mind. It's more like, I, I this is what I want to buy. And that, you know, that's a big problem for Amazon. People are very intentional. Um, and so with yours, it's the exact opposite where it's more like, I'm going to download this and have fun. So how do you sort of go about, exp- you know, educating the users that uh, exactly what it is and why they should download it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. I think that it's hard um, because the temptation is to, for any, like we're startups still, even though we're nine years old, the temptation is to try to maximize profit or maximize sales in any given period because, you know, you, you want to survive and you also want to grow and be like, you know, the biggest in your space. And so, you know, if you look at our, our our business, a lot of the decisions we make seem inefficient in the short run. It's like, we know that there's buyers that want to buy a product and we literally don't let them. We like, you know, we're, no, sorry, that thing is sold out or it's not available right now, come back tomorrow. Um, those are things that are designed to keep the experience fun because we know if, if we don't do that, they're not fun, but they also are hard decisions in the short run. And it, it does take a different type of education of the consumer, but the belief is, or at least our belief is that over the long run, there's going to be these these experiences are are going to have to t- to focus on a different type of um, of mentality than just trying to be as efficient as possible. And so we try to educate consumers the best we can. But the, the easiest way to do it is really to have them experience it, to have them experience bidding and winning, have them experience bidding and losing. We have a, a feature that we launched last year, which is like the treasure spin, which essentially anyone can just spin and, and earn a free prize, essentially, it could be like a small credit toward, to buy something, or it could be some some virtual, um, uh, you know, asset in our marketplace. But anyone can do that. And then we unlock that at different points in time. So maybe like, if you're a new person, we unlock it more frequently, and then you understand how it works, and you know what you have to do to unlock it. So there's a lot of like, you know, traditional game onboarding stuff that we're trying to do. But it is a little bit hard in e-commerce, because people come in, and they might think they're coming in just to buy that item. And we're quickly like, no, 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 that's not what we're about. We're about this like fun experience and sorry, you can't buy that thing, buy this other thing. 
So it's a challenge, but it's also, I think, why we're creating a, a long-term opportunity. And actually, so t- go ahead, sorry. No, keep going, sorry. And actually, one of the things that, that, that gives us a lot of confidence in that is if you look at, if you look at other markets, not necessarily the U.S., um, if you look at Asia in particular and, and China, where a lot of our supply is based, on the consumer side, there's tons of these game-like experiences that have just exploded now. It's like you can, it's almost like a view of what the what the world will look like in ten years. You just have to look at what China looks like today on the, in the e-commerce world, and and so we know that this is happening, and people are are looking to spend more and more time on their phones. And yeah, if you know what you want to buy, we're not suggesting to come to Top Hatter instead of Amazon or or your, your channel like that. That, that that dichotomy will exist. But if you're looking to kill time or you're looking to have fun with friends, that's the type of shopping that we want to to own. Yeah, I feel like the, the Asia thing is really interesting. And I've talked to dozens of people who all say, you know, yeah, we look at China as sort of a proxy of what's going to come. And I think that yep. I would love to just hear, given that you're in a company that is trying to ride that wave, um, how how do you approach those kinds of prognostications. Like, I feel like there are, like, li- like live video is another thing that I talk with a lot of people. Like, uh, people are going to be shopping with their with their phones, watching videos, because that's what people in China are doing. And so how, w- but, you know, the Chinese consumer is different than the U.S. consumer. So uh, what have you noticed in terms of how you are making it resonate with the U.S.-specific consumer so that these forecasts actually come come to pass? So live video is a, is a good example because people have been talking about live video, mm-hmm. you know, since internet started, essentially who is going to build like the QVC or home shopping network yeah. on your, on, on the web and on your phone. And nobody has been successful at it primarily because what, what they were trying to do was take an experience that worked on cable television and replicate it almost exactly on your phone. Um, and so what, what, one of the things that you see in, in, in China is people didn't, they didn't come from that. The, the, the winners or the people that are having success today with, with live shopping or with mobile shopping didn't come with that kind of attitude. They instead saw, wait a minute, people are watching a lot of like short form video on, uh, forget the name of the TikTok equivalent in China. It's like TikTok is here in the US. Duyen. Right. And so, wow, is there an opportunity to, to layer commerce on top of this that's already happening? So it's hard to just say, like, hey, open this app and watch video and buy stuff. But if people are already watching videos and already participating in some sort of experience, it's easier to imagine how commerce can layer on top. You know, our business has always been live, but we've never done, we've, and we actually have tested video at various points in time, but it's, it's never felt really natural to our experience. I think at some point it, it might and especially if you look at like the way TikTok has 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 grown here, um, you know, in the U.S., and you look at all the time people are spending on on YouTube and other platforms. Like, I think it, I think a, someone who creates a really mobile first experience with with shopping, with live shopping, with live video shopping in the U.S. will work as well. And there's a few startups that are having some success, but um, for us, it's about focusing on what the customer is actually doing. And our customers love to play these like social games that are quick and easy to play. Um, and that's why they, they shop with us. So I don't know if that answered your question exactly, but we, we, we don't try to like have an opinion that, that we know better. We, we sort of instead look at what users are doing and then try to make the experience more like what they're doing. No, that um, makes a lot of sense. 
So, and I think that's what you've seen in China of some of these guys that have been successful. And it's, it's, you, and it's why it's impossible to say, oh, I want to just replicate that here. Mm-hmm. Because it, it starts with the consumer behavior and, the, and consumers come from a different place there where they didn't have all the facilities that, and all the access that we had here. So they've, they've gone straight to their phones and are doing all these, finding all these interesting ways to shop. We're almost running out of time, but this sort of leads yeah. into my next and probably last question, which is, uh, so uh, we, you said, you know, you're observing this, figuring out what works, and that leads to future iterations, future uh, programs that you're testing out. So what, like, specifically in the next year, what's in the pipeline in terms of how the platform will evolve? Are you, like, what kind of, what are the new features? How are you going to approach, you know, more customer acquisition or figuring out new new people to download the app? So a couple of things, some of which are, are really probably uninteresting for most consumers, but our <laughs> biggest investment going forward is in, is in logistics. So this is like under the hood stuff that most consumers don't think about, but that impacts their experience like dramatically, not just in terms of speed, but also in terms of price and, and um, reliability. So we're going to be investing a lot in logistics as a business. So do you, you do the logistics? It's not the seller. The seller does the logistics. That's a really good question. So the seller does the logistics, but the challenge is that, um, and this is particularly relevant for, most of our supply that comes from, from Asia cross border. The challenge is the seller's economics are really, really difficult on an individual seller basis. But if we can aggregate products across different sellers and we can also know the, the, the most popular products and move them closer to the customer. When I say invest in logistics, it's more about data than it is about actually like standing up warehouses. But we'll know that like a certain buyer bought from four different sellers across mainland China, let's say, over the course of two days, they could get four different packages or we could ask those packages to be routed to a central hub where they can be then packaged together, sent over to the customer that saves the customer money and it also actually gets a better better experience. So we're doing a bunch of investments in logistics. But again, that's the boring stuff. The, the fun stuff is on the consumer experience, we're always trying to make it more engaging and more fun. Today, you know, about 80% of our sales are, are auction driven. Um, but we think there's other formats that are equally fun that aren't auctions. So we've launched this name your price format today, which is kind of fun where you get to, to, to place bids on items that the seller can then choose to accept. So it's kind of like a reverse auction. Hmm. Um, we have a bunch of stuff that we're, we are experimenting. I mentioned earlier on video, like our users are starting to spend more time in these short videos. So we're doing more, more in video and also in, in this more gamified experience and providing more ways for users to, to earn essentially currency in our app that they can then spend on product or spend on, um, on experiences to, make, to, to give themselves an edge. So those are kind of three areas. And I guess the fourth would be international. We Today, we're still you know, 80% U.S., you know, 90% North America, if you think of U.S. and Canada. And there's a huge opportunity to be global with this business. And so um, we're thinking about how we can grow faster outside of outside of these shores. All right, Andrew, this has been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Gail. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review and a rating. See you next week. Bye.